Welcome to the Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. Sheldon Wolf is a neurologist from UCLA who specializes in the diagnosis and treatment of dementia. When I heard him speak, I was reminded of the many things which need to be considered before we have an absolute diagnosis of dementia. Too often, we tend to look over all these other diagnostic possibilities. Dr. Wolf, thank you so much for being with us. Um, my pleasure. Let's begin. What types of non-dementia conditions might present as a dementia? I, Abby, I wouldn't put it that way. I, I would rather phrase, if, if I may have your permission to rephrase your question, I would say what kinds of, uh, of problems that are very treatable may cause cognitive and behavioral disturbances reaching the level sometimes of a dementia. And we might begin by talking about the definition of dementia because it's very common that families will ask the doctor, does, does my relative have dementia or does he have Alzheimer's disease uh, or what? And the answer is that dementia is a symptom complex. It's a set of symptoms. It's, it's, it's like fever. It's a general term for a confusional state and it has many, many causes of which Alzheimer's disease is unfortunately the most common. And just like fever can have uh, many causes, the flu, pneumonia, urinary tract infection, so dementia can have many causes. That's the difference between dementia and any one of the specific diseases which cause dementia, such as Alzheimer's disease. So I would rephrase your question to say what kind of problems which are very treatable can cause a picture of cognitive impairment, sometimes to the degree of dementia. So are there a certain set of tests or procedures that should be done before a doctor tells a family that their loved one has dementia? Absolutely, absolutely. Please remember that diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease requires the exclusion of other illnesses uh, which may mimic that. Alzheimer's is a diagnosis of, of exclusion, and it's imperative, it's one of the most critical responsibilities of the uh, physician to rule out these other causes of cognitive impairment and dementia before making a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. And that can include other metabolic problems, such as problems with the thyroid. Precisely. Now, the usual, usual common conditions which come to mind are, of course, thyroid deficiency and vitamin B12 deficiency, but there are quite a number more that have to be considered by the evaluating and treating clinician. And one of the common ones that we, from a psychiatric point of view, call pseudodementia, which we consider a form of depression. Uh, yeah. Uh, again, pseudo... Okay. That's, that, uh, that's fine. I don't know how helpful pseudodementia is. I much prefer the specific term of depression, uh, depression simulating uh, dementia. Okay, but if you like, call it pseudodementia. That's fine. Uh, it's, it's that there are a number of psychiatric terms hung on, which probably should be expunged. One of these is organic brain syndrome, organic mental syndrome. That's still uh, in the psychiatric code. That's a wastebasket, and any clinician who makes that diagnosis is avoiding necessary specificity because organic mental syndrome just means confusion, and 
can have innumerable causes. So that diagnosis, I think uh, you psychiatrists should expunge from the codes. I don't know if the next issue of the DSM is going to do that, but it should. So organic brain syndrome, organic mental syndrome, I think should be expunged and all psychiatrists urged to replace that with a specific diagnosis. The other that should be expunged is the word senility. And I think that's in the code book too because the word senility implies that dementia is a normal, just a normal aspect of aging. And to use the term senile or senility, again, is a barrier to diagnosis and avoids the work that a clinician should do in, in first identifying dementia as a disease and second of all establish, trying as best he can to establish its specific cause. And the third is that's not helpful is that pseudo-dementia. So those are three terms common in psychiatric parlance which I don't think are particularly useful. And I have to agree with you. One of the things that bothers me a lot is that people are often taken to an internist, their doctors, and with a simple little one, two, or three-minute test after a complaint that mom or dad seems not to be remembering as well, that with such a simple workup, they're put on one of the Alzheimer's drugs. Precisely. So now in, shall we go down? Remember at uh, my talk, I I forced the doctors in the audience to generate a differential diagnosis. Would you like to go down that? That would be excellent. Let's let everyone hear some of the things that need to be looked at. Sure. So we talked about hypothyroidism and vitamin B12 deficiency, and uh, we can talk about infections. Now, I'm going to limit, as I did in my talk, to considerations of patients who don't come into a doctor's office with, you know, fever or shaking chills or emaciated, you know, with a 40-pound recent weight loss. I'm talking about patients who look generally and systemically healthy except for the, for, uh, the cognitive impairment. So we have to consider possibilities. Uh, the possibilities are all, all kinds of organ failure, pulmonary failure, heart failure, renal failure, liver failure. Impairments of all these can produce cognitive impairment. Uh, you alluded, Abby, to uh, depression, and depression can either complicate or mimic uh, dementia. So you know, use the term pseudo-dementia. And so that's very important to evaluate for evaluate a patient with memory complaints for significant depression. And if you have a, a neuropsychologist available, that person can be of great help if you don't have a neuropsychologist. Sometimes what you have to do is give a, a patient in whom you're not sure whether the memory complaint is due to uh, depression or mild cognitive impairment or early Alzheimer's, you have to give the patient a trial of an antidepressant, but an SSRI, not a not a tricyclic, and say six months or so, and then if the patient comes back and says, well, depression is lifted, but my memory is no better, then you, you veer away from thinking that the depression is the cause of the cognitive impairment. Another very important category to consider are drugs, because many of the drugs that we use in the elderly may may cause or worsen cognitive impairment. Examples are all the anti-commonly uh, used drugs are the anti-incontinence medications like Detrol, Ditropan, Vesicare, 
All of the medicines, which are anticholinergic, have the ability to significantly impair cognition. Tricyclic antidepressants are, are anticholinergic and should be avoided. In the elderly, antihistamines like Benadryl have anticholinergic properties and should be avoided. Of course, say the benzodiazepines may cause cognitive impairment, barbiturates, alcohol. Alcoholism is certainly a major problem. Yeah, sure. And all of these, it's not, I, I just had a patient a few days ago, came in, she was on Vesicare for her incontinence, and she was on a benzodiazepine, and all of, all the medicines that cause cognitive impairment are, are additive. So you get somebody on an antihistamine to go to sleep, and an anti-incontinence agent, and a tranquilizer, they all add to give cumulative impact on cognition. For many years, there's been a lot of discussion about the role of nutrition and vitamins, in particular of late folate and vitamin D. Any thoughts about that? Mm, okay, uh, absolutely, uh, Abby. Okay, let's, I want to focus, I want to still focus on this differential diagnostic uh, list, but to partially answer your question, there is recent literature that vitamin D the isn't David deficiency may be a cause of cognitive impairment. And it is well substantiated that even in states with a great deal of sunshine, like California and Florida, elderly people get very little exposure to sunlight. And vitamin D deficiency is quite common. So I have begun to order vitamin D levels and to supplement if these are low. So, uh, yes, so B12, D, uh, D, those are, I have never ever seen a case of folate deficiency, uh, Abby, in 40 years. I don't even bother ordering it. I, in 40 years, I've never seen it either positive or, or significant. I don't give folate supplementation. There's plenty in food and there's also evidence, uh, recent evidence linking an increased risk of cancer to, uh, excessive folate supplementation. Okay, if you want to talk about vitamin E, more, more vitamins, vitamin E, the research is conflicting on vitamin E. I would suggest that it's better to try to get vitamin E from foods, nuts, green leafy vegetables, rather than take the pills. There's, there's some evidence that the pills may even have harmful effects like uh, increasing uh, cancer risk. So those are some comments on the vitamins, and, and now to go back to the list, we talked about we, we talked about drugs, we talked about depression, we talked about B12 deficiency, hypothyroidism, vitamin D deficiency. Need to consider the possibility of certain infections. Uh, remember, I said the patient looks healthy, mm -hmm. but you still have to consider the possibility of neurosyphilis. And doctors have forgotten how to diagnose syphilis and neurosyphilis. So that uh, in order to diagnose, and, and I'll, I'll say it again, this VDRL or RPR is a wonderful test you have if you're in an acute VD clinic. If you are in a clinic such as ophthalmology, rheumatology, cardiology, or neurology, where you're trying to diagnose tertiary syphilis, then the RPR VDRL is a poor test. For example, the RPR is false negative in 25% of cases of proven neurosyphilis. So the way to diagnose syphilis, tertiary syphilis, you must get a specific syphilis test. 
These have different names. At UCLA, it's the FTA, Quercetin mm-hmm. Treponema Antibody. At uh, my hospital, all of you, it's the MHATP, Microhemagglutination Treponema Antibody. Other hospitals, it's the TPPA, but all these are the same. They're the specific tests. They do not revert to false negative, and so that's the test you need to order. In order to make the diagnosis of neurosyphilis, you need a positive specific test in the blood, like the MHA or the uh, FTA, plus you need an abnormal spinal tap. And therein is the problem because doctors don't want to do spinal taps. It's invasive. Many doctors have forgotten how to do it. It's a, it's a pain, and my experience is that in general, doctors try to avoid it. They try to send the patient to the neurology department, and the neurology department says, hey, we're not the LP uh, service. And the internal and the primary care department says, hey, we don't want to do it, and besides, we forgot how to do it. So this is a problem, but it's critically important because neurosyphilis is a, is a potentially treatable cause of dementia, and so you've got to do the specific blood test and the LP to rule out neurosyphilis as a cause. And the main reasons is that the treatment for neurosyphilis is profoundly different from the treatment of late-late neurosyphilis. For late-late neurosyphilis, you just need one injection a week for three weeks of benzene penicillin, and you're finished with it. That's intramuscular. For neurosyphilis, you need 25 million units a day of intravenous penicillin. So that's that's how to diagnose syphilis and, and neurosyphilis, and this is largely forgotten. Syphilis certainly has not gone away, especially in areas and among populations where HIV is common. So I can imagine the response and the facial expressions of the family when you tell them that you need to test the grandmother for syphilis. That's true. That, that, that's true. What I say next when confronted with that kind of shock, Abby, is that we do... Uh, although we expected uh, that to be negative, in order to be complete and make sure that we don't forget anything that might be treatable, we have to check that as a matter of completeness. And then you have the problem when grandma tests test positive and, and the shock and disbelief, and you have to say, well, you know, syphilis, the germ of syphilis, the spirochete, can lie dormant in the body for 50 years. Sure. So grandma may well have contracted this, you know, when she was a teenager. It lies, it stays dormant in the body, and then for reasons which we do not understand, decades later can activate and cause havoc on uh, brain uh, or on the heart, uh, on joints. And then you have a problem, you know, one of the worst problems is when grandma tests positive and grandpa tests negative. Oh, boy, then you have, <laughs> then you have, then you have, then you have, then you have a problem, but, you know... It, Does it happen very often, by and large, or is it that we're not testing for it? No, no, no. All of these reversible causes is a relatively, uh, maybe with the exception of drugs and depression. All these reversible causes that I'm listing are uncommon, but they are also causes that the doctor does not want to miss for multiple reasons. Number one, for the patient's sake, because dementia is terrible and you don't want to miss a treatable possible etiology. Number two, for the legal protection of the doctor, I would not like to defend and court a doctor who did not diagnose B12 deficiency in his demented patient. So both for the patient's sake and for the doc- 
doctor's own sake, even though the treatable problems are uncommon, one really has to be complete in differential diagnosis. And I, I'm going to continue a little bit down the list. We talked about infectious etiology, another possibility of mass lesions. A benign meningioma, subfrontal meningioma, can present with dementia. More common, a chronic subdural hematoma, which in the elderly may be due to relatively mild head trauma, is another cause of, of dementia. And these people do often fall, and they do often have head injuries. Absolutely, and the elderly are susceptible to intracranial bleeding with much milder subdural hematoma, is much milder trauma than younger people. Continuing, electrolyte abnormalities, sodium, for example, up or down, hypercalcemia can cause dementia. Let's see, more. Normal pressure hydrocephalus is a, cause, is a treatable cause of dementia. It's treated with uh, shunting. I think I mentioned in the lecture that, I mean, this is incredibly rare, but uh, under the uh, rubric of drugs, to a case, to cases of peptobismal toxicity producing dementia from bismuth poisoning. And I think the, the last one that I want to mention is sleep apnea. Sleep, I'm business, business, peptobismal poisoning, you're not going to see, you know, you have to wait two lifetimes to see that. But sleep apnea, you're going to see all the time because 4% of the American population has it, and as we get fatter, that becomes more common. And sleep apnea is not only a significant risk for a stroke and heart attack, but also for cognitive impairment. So all the doctor has to do, if this is going to go to families, Abby, if the patient with cognitive impairment tends to fall asleep when he, she doesn't want to, or, you know, and snores. So snoring and voluntarily falling asleep, those are the hallmarks of sleep apnea, and it's a very treatable disease with a CPAP machine, and treatment can produce significant cognitive improvement as well as be very important in the prevention of heart attack and stroke. And Okay, so that's of treatable illnesses that should be considered before the diagnosis of uh, Alzheimer's is made. All excellent points. One of the things that you also spoke about was a very simple test, asking someone what they would do if there was an emergency. I thought this was really intriguing and simple, very simple. Yes, well, uh, yes, that, that's uh, one of the most helpful questions that family or the doctor uh, can ask. It tests a cognitive function. It's called executive function, which is the brain function involved in problem solving. So you ask the patient, well, what would you do if you were sitting home alone at night and the lights went out? Or you can ask, what would you do if you were home alone and you smelled smoke in the house? And you can judge the appropriateness of the patient's Coping mechanisms, I, as I told you, I had one patient who said, well, I just begin to scream. So people who can't cope with emergencies, as you can tell from the answer to those questions, should not be left alone at any time. It's unsafe. I want to add, Abby, it's only after this is done that you then go to the list of diseases which we call neurodegenerative such as Alzheimer's, such as frontotemporal dementia, such as Lewy body dementia. You know, so first you go to those that treatable list of diseases, then you go to the list of uh, neurodegenerative diseases, recognizing that you know the the elephant in the room is Alzheimer's disease, and three quarters of patients 
who are present to the doctor's office with you know, who are alert and have a a history of gradual onset and progressive dementia and who are elderly are going to have Alzheimer's disease. But 25% are not. 25% are not. And I would say also one, one common problem is the issue of vascular dementia. The vascular, pure vascular dementia is overdiagnosed by primary care doctors. It, it, in pure form, it accounts for only about 5% of the dementias. But the most common patient presenting to my clinic, and this is, I think, increasingly being recognized, is the patient who has gradual onset, slow progression, uh, like Alzheimer's disease, but in, in addition is hypertensive, diabetic, hyperlipidemic, and has some uh, strokes on the CT or MRI. That diagnosis is not vascular dementia. That diagnosis is combined Alzheimer's disease and cerebrovascular disease. And it's critically important to treat both. You treat the patient with an Alzheimer's medicine and you vigorously, vigorously work on, on stroke prevention, an antiplatelet agent, and, uh, and correcting the risk factors like hypertension, uh, diabetes, hyperlipidemia. So combination of Alzheimer's and cerebrovascular disease is probably the most cause of a progressive dementia coming into the office. But again, you first go down that other list of treatable conditions. This has been like a walk through a good neurology textbook. Dr. Wolf, thank you so much for being with us. Sheldon Wolf is a neurologist who practices in Los Angeles and specializes in dementia and its treatment. Thank you, sir. I, uh, it was a pleasure, Abby, and I'm uh, honored that you asked me to uh, join you. Thank you, but the honor was ours.